Heavenly Father, we do not want the great work of your Holy Spirit displayed in the early church to fall on deaf ears this morning. We want to rightly see the power of a gospel life lived out amongst those who have been saved by grace just like us, indwelt by the Holy Spirit just like us, hearing the Word preached just like us, and yet living very, very powerful lives. We want to do the same not only for the well-being of those who are here in this church and in this Cambrian Park community, but ultimately for your glory and the glory of Christ. And so I ask, Lord, that you would show us this gospel life this morning, that you would show us how you have both equipped and called us to live. We want to be a faithful people, and we want to be transformed by Christ, and we know that you can do that through your word. I pray, Father, you would bless us this morning with the presence of your Spirit, that we might experience the very real saving power even this morning. For those who are not saved, Lord, I pray you would redeem them. For those of us who are, I pray that you would strengthen and encourage us, that we would leave this place utterly changed, no longer eking out an existence or making our way through life, but being empowered by the Holy Spirit have the gospel upon our lips, proclaiming it faithfully to all those in our mission field that we might see you add to your church. We are thankful for this testimony, and I praise you for this encouraging word and this encouraging book. I pray, Lord, that we would find ourselves living it out as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A gospel life. Sounds like something you'd hear during Christmas time, right? We're going to watch A Gospel Life tonight. That's the title of the sermon. It may sound simple, but at the very foundation of our faith is living as Christians in the power of the gospel. Most of you know that the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, what? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. It is the power of God to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God. For most non-Christians, when they hear the word gospel, they're probably thinking of some marketing technique you're using to get them to convert to Christianity. A student of mine said that to me one time. You're just trying to sell me something. I would say many Christians hear the word gospel and they only think of it in terms of evangelism and outreach. But the gospel according to the Bible, the gospel which is salvation by grace through faith in a crucified, risen, now reigning King Jesus Savior the Bible says, is the very power of God. In other words, the gospel is filled with real, divine, eternal power, power that has changed your heart if you know Christ. It's changed people, and it's changed entire nations. And so I'd like to talk about that power this morning, and I'd like to live in that power this morning with you, my brothers and sisters. In 1969, mankind, most of you know, stepped foot on the moon. It was a defining moment in human history to actually walk on dirt that was not on planet Earth. Essential to the mission of getting to the moon was the now very, very antiquated AGC, the Apollo Guidance Computer, designed by none other than MIT. And while effective, it was not powerful, <clears throat> not by today's standards, it had only 64 kilobytes of memory. Now, that should be hysterical to most of you. And it operated on a whopping .043 megahertz. I, I hate to tell you, but your modern-day toaster has more power than that. My now antiquated iPhone 6, it operates on 64 gigabytes, gigabytes of memory and at a whopping 1.4 gigahertz in terms of speed. My phone can process 3.36 billion instructions per second. My phone. Put simply, my iPhone is 120 million times faster than the computer system that got the lunar module to the moon. 120 million times faster. So you would not be wrong in saying that my iPhone could be used to guide 120 million Apollo-era spacecraft to the moon all at the same time. That's power, and that's in a phone. My beloved, in our passage today from Acts, 
Dr. Luke reveals a power infinitely greater than your iPhone. Now, my Apple lovers, I know that may be hard for you to believe, but that's what the gospel teaches. A power that is able to raise the dead and guide millions and millions of souls, not from earth to the moon, but from eternal destruction to eternal life in God. Infinitely more powerful. And so Dr. Luke reveals that this morning, the power of the gospel, and I'd like to reveal that to you as well by looking at three things. One, how the gospel divides, how the gospel liberates, and how it confounds. How the power of this gospel testimony of a crucified, risen, reigning king divides people, liberates people, and confounds people. So the theme is simple. It's gospel lives are powerful lives. Gospel-filled lives are power-filled lives. My beloved, I do believe that we in the Western church need to hear this today. I think that the Western church is in desperate need of an infusion of gospel power. I would argue most of your lives are. If not today, then certainly over this past year, as we've kind of made our way out of this fog, there's no fog for the Christian. No time for it. Christ may come at any moment. Amen? All right, number one, the power of the gospel to divide. We talk so much about striving for unity in our culture, and we bring about political and economic solutions to that end. But it may surprise you, the gospel actually divides people. In Acts chapter 4, if you remember following the arrest and then release of Peter and John, the church got together and they prayed. Do you remember what they prayed? They prayed, number one, for the courage to proclaim the gospel boldly, which they were doing. And they also prayed that God would, by His mighty hand, perform and exercise many signs and wonders. Both were very dangerous prayers because they knew that if God said yes, equipping them to proclaim the gospel and supporting that gospel with signs and wonders, that they would be persecuted as a church. God said yes in most fantastic fashion. In fact, our third summary for the book here by Dr. Luke is offered in verses 12 through 16. God answered in an overtop fashion. In fact, it, it ought to cause you to be very careful what you pray and make sure you really want what you're asking for because God is someone who answers prayers. Look at verse 12 again. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. So the signs and wonders are happening on a regular daily basis. And they were all together, the church now, all together in Solomon's portico, Then verse 13 says, But none of the rest dared join them, those outside the church, but they held them, the church, the apostles, in high esteem. Verse 14, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Verse 15, So that even they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. They were all healed. So as with our Lord during His earthly ministry, the apostles were empowered per their prayer request by God with signs and wonders, the ability to do signs and wonders. Now you would immediately think that this would just draw people in from all kinds, saved and unsaved. They want to see it for entertainment value. They want to experience it, the healing value. But that wasn't the case. It actually had a dividing effect. On the one hand, we're told in verse 14 that God used these signs and wonders to add multitudes of both men and women to the church. So the church is growing on the one hand, and then simultaneously we're told, Luke tells us in verse 13, that many were afraid to draw near. None of the rest dared join the church. And so an early division is taking place between those redeemed by God and those not redeemed by God. In other words, the power displayed through the many signs and wonders. And the most recent events, as we saw last week, of the the killing of Ananias and Sapphira, it had a twofold effect. It drew some in, and it pushed others away. It drew some in, and it pushed others away. But the question is, I look at this text and was wondering, why would anyone be pushed away from free food and miracles that we heal the body and the soul? I mean, I was complexed here, especially in our day and age when we're trying to give people money and food and medicine free all the time. How is it that they didn't all want it? Why would they not all want to draw near? Certainly, they were in great need of medical attention. 
They didn't have what we had, the modern technology of medicine. The apostles were offering it for free. No, no medical insurance, no deductibles, no co-payments. Just come and be healed. In fact, so powerful and instantaneous were these miracles that were told people were bringing their sick loved ones out on the streets and putting them on mats thinking if Peter's shadow just passes by. Look at verse 15. They carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats so that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Now, Luke doesn't tell us whether or not that actually had power. We don't know that. But you know, it's interesting. He uses the same word for shadow that he used to discuss, to reveal the overshadowing of Mary when she was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. So commentators think, yeah, maybe. The, the, the idea of a shadow in, in antiquity, it, it was very superstitious in nature, and most people thought that the shadow was an expression of your personality or an extension of yourself, in which case that would kind of make sense here. But Luke is trying to say, listen, so prolific is the healing that's taking place, so regular and so supernatural that even a shadow, one of the apostles or Peter himself, would have healing power. So much so that people are flocking to the city. They're flocking to Jerusalem. Look at verse 16 again. The people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And key now, they were all healed. Physical and spiritual ailments bringing brought, brought to the apostles into Jerusalem, and they're all being healed. In other words, whoever showed up got what they wanted. Whoever showed up was healed. Physical healing, spiritual healing, they were all restored. Not one person left unrestored. Not one. And so I'm back to my question again. If all were being healed for free, why were some staying away? I believe the answer is because these supernatural healings, the signs and wonders were not independent of the gospel itself. Remember, they were given by God to confirm the gospel They were to confirm that there's healing for man's ultimate infirmity of sin. That through the life, death, resurrection, and now reigning Jesus Christ, man can come before God, confess his sins, be healed completely spiritually, and be brought into the family of God. In fact, we know this, Acts chapter 14, which we'll get to, when Paul and Barnabas are teaching and preaching the gospel in Iconium. Iconium was a a city in modern-day Turkey. Listen to what Luke tells us. Paul and Barnabas spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable more time there speaking boldly for the Lord. And this is what the Lord did. The Lord who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to perform what? Signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. You say, why are there so many signs and wonders in the book of Acts as they were in the Gospels? To reveal and point to Jesus Christ and the Gospel. That we might know that this testimony is real. And now we know the rub, don't we? If all these signs and wonders are confirming the message of grace, if they're all pointing to the gospel, you don't have the gospel without a crucified reigning king. You don't have a gospel without Jesus Christ. And so people were staying away because they realized with that free food and with that free healing comes a king that we don't want to submit to. And that's the rub. During Jesus' earthly ministry, you probably remember John chapter 6, He's feeding people. He's healing people. And then he teaches this horrible thing. Remember? He said, in order to be saved, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they knew what he was saying. He's claiming messiahship. He's claiming kingship. They had to put their faith in his life, death, and resurrection as the power and the means by which he would be saved. In fact, this is listen to this, John chapter 6. Many of the disciples, when they heard the gospel... They said to one another, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So we can't take this anymore. And after this, John tells us many of his disciples turned back and they no longer walked with him. No more free food, no more free healing. Why? They didn't want to submit to Jesus. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away too? Are you going to leave Peter? Are you going to leave John? Simon Peter answered for them all, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know, listen, that you are the Holy One of God. There's the rub. You want free food? You want free medical care? Christ says, I'm king. You must come under my reign. Jesus is always willing to feed the hungry and heal the sick. 
But the signs and wonders point to a truth infinitely greater than the signs and the wonders. They point to the fact that Jesus is the Holy One of God, that he is the king, and that as king, he's brought his kingdom down to earth. Remember, I think I quoted this already a few sermons ago, Luke chapter 11, after Jesus cast out the demon, he said to the, to the naysayers, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has what? Has come upon you. Christ the king has come, he brought his kingdom to earth, that's why we're seeing the power. That's why we're seeing the signs and the wonders. That's why we're seeing people that are saved by grace and brought into the kingdom because the king had come and so had his power. So all those who were enjoying this luxury of free medical care began to see, oh, there's a, a much deeper message to this. And it's pointing to Jesus Christ as Lord. And we don't want that. We don't want him. We want his food. I mean, everybody likes free food. And we want his medical care. Everybody wants that too. But they didn't want Jesus as king, and so they stayed away. You say, well, why, why is this the effect of the gospel? Because it is always the effect of the gospel. The apostle Paul said to the church in Corinth that the gospel either draws people in or it repels them. It doesn't have a neutral effect. He said in 2 Corinthians 2.16, Paul did, for we are, speaking of the church, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. There should be an expectation, my beloved. Listen, in your life, that if you live in accordance with God's teaching by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you pursue holiness and you are faithfully, simultaneously, faithfully proclaiming the gospel of grace, there will be people in your life who are drawn in. They're going to see the way you're living. They're going to see your marriage and see your children and see how you handle money and relationships. And they're going to hear you preach the gospel to them. And they're going to be brought into the church too. And there'll be others, many others, who will see your way of life, even esteeming your way of life as those outside the church did the apostles in the early church. They'll esteem your way of life. They'll see that there's a deep joy they cannot understand. They'll see that there's a stability in your relationships and your family. They'll see you part of this extended family of the church, and they won't understand it. It will confound them, and they will stay away. Many will hate you for it because when they hear the gospel, they realize, oh, this is more than just about healthy marriages and raising children and maybe some free medical care. This is about a king. This is about submission to a king. And you can't have the signs and wonders if you don't submit to the king, right? The healing power comes from a healing king. You don't have one without the other. And so they were all pointing, all the signs and wonders were pointing to this King Jesus, that in fact his kingdom had come. You know, when, when cakes are being ordered and dresses are being purchased and people are researching venues for a wedding, you know what's imminent. What's imminent is that a man and a woman are going to be engaged in holy matrimony. Women, when you get pregnant, you may suffer from morning sickness. I'm not talking about anybody personally. Morning sickness. Maybe you'll gain a little bit of weight. Maybe you'll be extremely tired. And it's pointing to, it's a sign to that birth is imminent. New life is coming. Well, the signs and wonders we see here and will throughout the rest of the book of Acts, they're given by God to confirm that Jesus Christ is king, that his gospel is true, that he offers spiritual healing, permanent spiritual healing, restoration, restoration in your relationship with God by grace through faith. And that message will draw some in and it will cause others to flee. Number one, the gospel divides. The gospel divides. But there's something else here I want to show you, the power of the gospel, and that is to liberate. The power of the gospel divides, the saved and the unsaved, and the power of the gospel to, to liberate. So here in the early church, those who were being, they were, they were living in the power of the gospel, they were proclaiming the gospel, some are drawn in, others are repelled, but there's another response that we get here in verse 17, and that is some rise up against the church. Look at verse 17 with me. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, verse 18, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. 
So the apostles, by the power of God, are doing what? They're setting people free. They're setting people free of their spiritual ailments. They're setting people free of their physical ailments. And our beloved Sadducees think it best to throw those people who are healing people into prison. In fact, it says the public prison, probably better read, thrown into prison publicly by the Sanhedrin, that they might be a warning to the church to cease and desist all this Jesus dialogue, to stop talking about this man that we put to death on a Roman cross. You see, the the Sadducees were in a bind. What, What else could they do? They can either capitulate and join the movement, or they can try to use force in order to stop it. But what we find here, what Dr. Luke gives us a revelation here in 17, and it's fantastic. It shows us that they were actually the ones in prison, not the apostles. Verse 17 says that they were jealous. They arrested them, all 12, put them in prison because they're jealous of them. And in other words, we get jealousies a reflection of the heart. We get inside the heart of the Sadducees, and we begin to see why they were so adamantly against this gospel message. The word in the Greek is zealos, where we get the English word zealot. You probably know that word, to be enthusiastic or to be passionate or persuasive. And no doubt, the Sanhedrin, they were passionate and persuasive about trying to stop this movement. But another way to translate zealos is jealous. And I think that that fits the context much better here. The Sadducees were jealous because of the undeniable power being exercised through the apostles and the following that they had accumulated in such a short period of time. We're talking about thousands of believers now following this brand new sect of Judaism. What did the Sadducees have? They had rules. They had regulations. They had to use guilt. They had to use tradition. They had to use threat of punishment to get someone to be obedient to God. The Sadducees knew nothing of the power of the love of God that captivates someone's heart. And as a result of that captivation, causes them, compels them to live a completely different life. They knew nothing of the power of a captivated heart by Jesus Christ. Grievously, my beloved, the evil of jealousy is not limited to the unsaved, as you know, from your own heart. God's people often will experience this as well. How often have you looked upon someone blessed by God, maybe empowered by God? You've looked upon someone else's marriage, and you thought, oh, I wish my marriage were like that. Or you looked upon someone else's children and think, oh, I wish my children obeyed like that. Or maybe a job or, or a home, and, and you thought, I really wish I had that life too. God's been so gracious with them. Instead of rejoicing, which is the Christian response to a brother or sister being blessed by God, is it not? Every single Christian who sees a brother or sister either empowered by the Holy Spirit doing great work for the kingdom or being blessed by God's grace in their family and relationships and with their money is something we should be rejoicing over. And when you don't rejoice, you have the same jealous heart as these men here. You see, jealousy, not only only do we want what someone doesn't have, we hate the fact that they have it and we don't. Jealousy is a deep-seated sin that will cause us to do all kinds of foolish things. When we look upon other churches and other ministries, and we say, why not here, Lord? Why don't we see the fruit being born here, Lord? Why not in San Jose, Lord? And we look upon those other ministries, assuming that they're gospel-centric, Christ-glorifying ministries, and we're jealous. We're denying the power of God. In fact, we're denying the sovereignty of God. He chooses. It's His right. He's God. It's His church and His world. If He decides to bless on the other side of town, and not bless here, and both churches are being faithful, we should rejoice and not be jealous. Amen? Amen. We grumble when we ought not. This sin, my beloved, is not only a rejection of the undeniable work of God. Remember, the the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees in particular, (laughs) how much more revelation do they need? First there was Jesus, and now there are the apostles. All these signs, all these wonders in the context of the gospel of grace, and they cannot have it. They cannot believe it. Why? Because their hearts are racked with jealousy. It was so debilitating, they had to change their entire worldview in order for it to make sense. And the harder they pushed, the more crazy it got for them. So jealousy is sinful not only because it rejects It compels us to reject the undeniable work of God and rejoice over it. It's just plain stupid. Right now, while all sin is stupid, jealousy is also stupid. Look at how effective 
the decision by the Sanhedrin was. How wise their decision was. Look at verse 19. They had put all 12 apostles in jail saying, that'll stop it. Verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them, the apostles, out. And the angel said to them, verse 20, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Go do exactly what you were doing. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. So, filled with jealousy, the Sanhedrin come up with this grand idea they're going to throw all 12 apostles in jail. Their unwillingness, my beloved, to accept the sovereignty of God did not negate the sovereignty of God. They could turn away from it. They could reject it. But it did not stop God from doing a mighty work. God sends an angel, which the Sadducees, by the way, didn't even believe in. So how do you, how do you have that part of your story? They don't believe in angels, and it's the angel who gets them out of jail. And then the angel instructs them to go, to go back and preach the message of life in the same place, under the same jurisdiction of the temple, the captain of the temple, that you did. And they went to the morning services, and they were told to preach to the people all the words of what? Of this, and most of your translations have a capital L, life. This gospel life, this transformed life. Well, what was that specifically? Well, certainly we know that in the proclamation of the gospel, they're talking about eternal life, right? In this message of a new life, that there's the forgiveness of sins and there's the promise of eternal life with God through the, through the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus. So there was a, a great eschatological future promise to this new life. But it wasn't just what the future was promised to the believing man or the believing woman. It's the power that that person has now. Remember, the king has come. His kingdom is here. And we know that in that kingdom there is much power. There's much power for the saints then and there's much power for the saints now. In other words, in our narrative, the apostles were in prison, but it wasn't the apostles who were imprisoned. It's the Sadducees who were in prison. The Sadducees are the ones who were in prison. And even though they, they were the ones sitting on the high court, they had decisions of both life and death, and they were evidenced here in the, the throwing of God's messengers in jail. But it was they themselves who were imprisoned by their own sins. Specifically, we know here, bound by their own jealousy. Right? Jealousy is about self-love, not loving others. Jealousy is about self-glory, not the glorification of others or God. And jealousy is about living your life like your God. Jealousy is saying, I, I'm not going to submit to the sovereignty of God. I'm not going to submit to His plan. It denies biblical love, it denies biblical glory, and it denies biblical rule, this sin of jealousy. So instead of submitting, which they could have, to the revealed plan of God, as so blatantly revealed through the apostles, instead of submitting to that, they remained in rebellion. And in their rebellion, they remained in prison. They had no way out of their own selfish hearts and their desire for self-glory. But the apostles go out, set free, and they preach this message of a new life. A new life which includes radical power now, in the present moment. Power to overcome certainly the debilitating sin of jealousy, and I would argue any sin that you battle with in the flesh. Right? The, the, this new life is not just about the new life and the new hope we have and when Jesus comes and brings us home. This new life starts right now. This new life starts as soon as you profess faith in Jesus and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You hear the gospel. God applies the gospel. You're now what? You're born again. You're a son or daughter of the king. And you have the king's power to overcome every single sin in your life without exception. So whatever sin you've capitulated to and you said, I, I can't, that one I can't, that's a lie. My beloved, you have you have power from on high. I just told you how powerful your iPhones were, right? You have power from God. No such sin. You say, I can't overcome it according to the power that we have here. The apostles, are they not perfect living testimonies to this power? I mean, they, they, they refuse to listen to the Sanhedrin. They're let out of jail. The angel says, go back to the same place you've been arrested now twice for Peter and John. Go back and say the same message. And they don't go, oh, you know what? We've tried that. That's not working out so well. We keep ending up in jail. 
you know, so many times you do that and, well, it's just going to get bad. But instead they go out. They obey God because they love God. They obey God because they love Jesus. They obey God because they love the lost. And they know that the lost cannot know Christ unless the message is proclaimed. And so they go back out to that morning service in the temple and they do exactly what God told them to do. My beloved, every single believer, empowered by the Holy Spirit, listen, if you think you lack power, every single believer empowered by the Holy Spirit is equipped by God to overcome your self-love, your self-glory, and your self-rule. Equipped by God to do those very things this day and every day until Christ brings you home. He sets us free from our enslaved hearts. In fact, you heard, just read from Romans chapter 6. This is your life. You've been buried with Jesus through baptism into death if you know Christ. And just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so that we too may live what? Paul says, a new life. Now we may live a new life. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking. Listen, I know that we're sold stuff all the time, and we have marketeers breathing down our neck. I'm not talking about the typical marketing cliches designed to get you to buy something. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not selling you. Ikea says, here's Ikea, the life improvement store. Chase, Kirk, you'll love this. Life deserves rewarding. Blue Cross, live fiercely. That's weird for Blue Cross, isn't it? Live fiercely? Won't that cause their insurance prices to go up? ING Investments, spend your life well. Pepsi, live life now. Constantly being bombarded by the marketeers saying, this is how you can have that new life. This is how you can live that new life. God is not trying to sell you something. The gospel is not trying to sell you something to consume to consume self-love and self-glory and self-rule, the gospel comes along and makes you, listen, a producer. A producer of love. A producer of glorifying God. A producer of someone who submits to God, loving others, glorifying God, and following Jesus in what? In freedom. Christ said, I came to what? To set the captives free. And if you know the truth and you know the gospel, then you are free indeed, free, free to live as God created you to live. You're not supposed to live bound in your sin. You're supposed to live freely following Christ, loving deeply others more than yourself, glorifying God instead of yourself, submitting to God, His rule, His sovereign plan, not your own. And it's so much better, my beloved. It's so much better. How's that life of sin working out for you? It doesn't work. It is slavery. Stay on that path, and you may find eternal destruction is your end. We're free in Christ to live this new life, which is infinitely better than any sin that you have coddled to come up against. So we've seen, number one, the power of the gospel to divide. Number two, the power of the gospel to set us free. Can I give you one more? i gotta, I got to give you one more. It's in my notes, so here you go. Number three. The power of the gospel to confound. What do I mean confound? So the following day, they arrest the apostles. The following day, the Sanhedrin gathers. They got all their pomp and all their circumstances. All their boys are there. And the first thing on their docket, confront all 12 of those pesky apostles who keep talking about this Jesus fellow. He needs to go away. Look at the latter part of verse 21. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and they sent to the prison, have them brought, have the apostles brought before us. Verse 22, but when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. The apostles are gone. Right, this is not, this wasn't some, you know, El Chapo jailbreak where they, the disciples dug tunnels underneath the Jerusalem walls to get the apostles out. And it wasn't negligence, the the, the prison doors were not left open. The guards didn't fall asleep. We know that. Look at, uh, look at verse 23. They, the officers come back to the Sanhedrin and they say, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. No natural explanation. They went in, but they didn't stay in. Guards were there. Doors were locked. It had been less than 24 hours. And they're nowhere to be found. Verse 24. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, 
They were, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this, what this would come to. Greatly perplexed. They were utterly speechless. Now remember, we've already defined these people. They're the best lawyers, best philosophers, best scribes in the land, and they have nothing to say. What an odd historical moment it must have been. Utter silence in the Sanhedrin. They had nothing to say, listen, because they only were looking for natural explanations, but something supernatural happened, right? An angel showed up. That's supernatural. Not only did an angel show up, but somehow the angel got all 12 apostles out without the guards even knowing because the guards were surprised. So they're left confounded. And in their confusion, notice what they say. They wondered what this would come to. The NIV renders this better. They wonder what this might lead to. What was this going to lead to? I mean, what a debilitating moment for Jerusalem's high court. They have tried to alter their entire reality by denying Jesus Christ, the signs and wonders, the apostles. and the, They've tried really hard, and it continues to fail. In fact, the harder they try, the worse their situation gets. They already murdered Jesus. He was an innocent man. They've arrested now Peter and John twice. They arrested the rest of them. They threatened them all. Stop doing this. Stop preaching Christ. And then they find out that they can't even hold him in jail. They can't even hold him long enough to try him. So they can't even use physical force. And they can't use physical force. What are they to do? They were, as we all are, powerless when it comes to the sovereignty of God. They were absolutely powerless to stop God's plan. Praise God for that. My beloved, this is the good news about the good news. When it comes to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel going out and saving many, God will win. He always does. He always has. History has borne this out. The greatest kings and the greatest nations have been utterly powerless to stop the proclamation of the gospel and the growth of the church. And they've tried. A hundred years before the Reformation, there was a man by the name of John Huss. Many of you probably remember him. He was a, a rector at the University of Prague, and he was actually a follower of, of Wycliffe. He had issues with the Pope, specifically indulgences, purgatory. In other words, he challenged the Catholic Church, and he was bringing back the gospel of grace. Well, the church, of course, the Catholic Church excommunicates him immediately, and they call him to the council at Constance because they want to have a dialogue with him. Well, John Huss was no fool. He said, there's no way I'm going because if I go, you're going to put me in jail and you're going to kill me. And they, gave, they guaranteed him safe travel and a safe trial until he got there. And then they threw him in jail, went against their word, six months, and then at the end of that six months, they declared him a heretic after a false trial, and they put him to death. They put him to death. Listen to this. This is something that he uttered, John Huss uttered, right before his execution in 1415 A.D. He said to his accusers, you may roast this goose. Huss actually means goose in Czechoslovakian. He said, you may roast this goose, but a hundred years from now, a swan will arise whose singing you will not be able to silence. Almost a hundred years exactly from the execution of John Huss came Martin Luther. Martin Luther, 1517. And he unleashed the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and through the Reformation, transformed the world. In fact, if you've ever been to a Lutheran church and you see a swan, it's in reference to Luther, that he is the swan that Huss was talking about. No matter how hard they tried, they could not stop the gospel from going forth. Look at verse 25. Someone came and, and told them, told the Sanhedrin, look, the men, <laughs> this is so great, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Not only were they not in jail, where they expected them to be, they're right back in the exact same place doing the exact same thing they were told not to do. They're in the temple preaching Christ. It's, this is comedic, my beloved. you got to read this, and you got to laugh. It's intended to be comedic. They're standing and they're teaching the people about this new life in Christ. They're not hiding. They didn't go into their, their, their homes. They didn't flee the area. And remember, the jurisdiction for the, the captain of the temple was the temple. So they, they had gotten out of Jerusalem. They would have been fine, but they're unafraid of the consequences. They're sold, sold out for Christ. 
and so other-centered in the proclamation of the gospel. They stay, they teach, they preach, and they confound everyone by their courage. The Sanhedrin can't figure them out, and even the church is saying, what are you guys doing here? Look at verse 26, and the captain with the officers went and brought them, the apostles, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Oh, my beloved, I'm sure the captain of the temple would have loved nothing. Captain of the temple, remember, he's second in command of the high priest. He's usually the person that's set for that office coming up. I'm sure he'd have loved nothing more than to have had these men stoned on the spot. Stop this Jesus movement now. Stone these 12 men. But Dr. Luke tells us it's the exact opposite. They go out there timidly, and they're afraid now that this mass of people are going to stone them, which, of course, they wouldn't have because they're Christians. They didn't know that, though. They're confounded not only by the fact that there's power in this crowd, but they're confounded by what what do the apostles do? They go peacefully. We'll, We'll go right back. I'm sure they were expecting a fight of some kind, but the apostles go peacefully. God's angel, now now listen, God's angel had just set them free hours earlier, and now they're waltzing right back into the Sanhedrin with the captain and his officers. Certainly the world would have said, listen, your your luck's running out. One time, two time, don't go back there again. At some point in time, your luck's going to run out. And I would imagine, I would imagine there are people in the church similar to the Ephesian elders telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem, similar to what we hear in conversations today. People there, I'm saying, listen, God's providence set you free, so you must leave. You must go away. Don't go back. But the apostles, my beloved, they, they didn't operate on luck, and they didn't even operate on speculating the motive of God. They simply obeyed. They simply did what God told them to do. God told them to go back to the temple, which they did. God told them to proclaim the gospel again, which they did. They were now arrested again. So be it. The results are God's, not man. Oh, what do you call that? That's walking by faith, is it not? That's walking by simple faith. Hearing what God has said for us, hearing what God has said through his word and living in accordance with it. What a profound theology. Doing the Bible. Oh, we need to hear that today. Simply obeying God's clear command and leaving the results up to God. My beloved, their simple faith confounded the Sanhedrin, it confounded the church, and it still confounds the world today. Simple faith always confounds because it's completely the opposite of our flesh. It's the opposite of how we want to think. And this is how the gospel of Jesus Christ works, has always worked. It always confounds the fallen world, even today. My beloved, the Sadducees did not understand the signs and the miracles. They believed they were true, but they didn't see what they pointed to. I believe that through the supernatural gifting of the Holy Spirit in the church, that each and every one of us has been equipped by God supernaturally, listen, please, supernaturally gifted to come into a body just like this and love each other in such a radical way and serve together in such a radical way that we will confound the world. We'll confound the world and how we are as a new family in Christ. Our signs and wonders to the Cambrian Park community is the Cambrian Park community seeing people, once strangers, saved by grace, now loving each other like brothers and sisters, so intimate with one another that nothing can come in and divide us. So unified in our work that the world, the culture will see, wow, these people are serious about Jesus, really serious about him. Each and every one of you is gifted to be a bodybuilder. Do you know that? I just watched this documentary on Arnold Schwarzenegger. What a big man he was. He was a big man. Man, was he motivated to to get his body just right. You have been equipped by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the living God to be a bodybuilder, not the type that Arnold was, but to build up what? This church, this local body that we all might resemble and come into compliance with the Son as we cultivate a deep love here, not only for one another, but for the lost. That'll confound the world. That'll confound the world. The world will also be confounded, though, I do believe, by our faithful proclamation of the gospel, especially when it's not safe. Especially when it's not safe. You see, the world is always striving for the path of least resistance. The gospel doesn't. The gospel wins by what? By losing. It's the most upside-down thing. 
When is the gospel most successful? When the church seems to be losing most, right? I mean, the apostles just got out, and now they're back, they're back before the Sanhedrin again. That looks like a loss, but it had the exact opposite effect. It was a win. They freely surrender because they know that God's plan of redemption cannot be stopped. They know that. And both in Acts and for the rest of the New Testament, what we see God doing again and again, and he does it in your life, is he brings victory through seeming loss. It looks like we're being set back. It looks like there's failure in our life. But that can't be the case for Christ. It can't be the case for his children. The suffering death of the apostles, which we will see, just like their master, had the exact opposite effect of stopping the Jesus movement. The church grew. The church grew. Anytime we go through suffering and hardship, either individually and even more so as a church, what we find is God taking our suffering and our hardship and bringing himself glory by blessing the movement, by blessing the church. The harder Satan and the world, and I would argue even your flesh, tries to stop the light of God from going out from this place in your life, the more God's light shines. And therefore, my beloved, regardless of how difficult your life may be right now, how difficult it may seem the church in the Western world is right now, especially post-COVID, regardless of what it looks like, we know from this passage, here's a simple theology, God always wins. God always wins, and if God always wins and you belong to Christ, therefore you're in God, you always win. The church always wins. The church always wins. Even when it looks like we're losing. Even when it looks like you're losing. Think about the greatest victory in human history was Christ upon the cross, and yet on that day, on that day, it looked like the greatest loss, did it not? Never has been, never is. So the world, the world will, can be confounded by our incredible love for one another. The world can be confounded by our faithful proclamation of the gospel, even when it seems like we're losing because we know we're winning. So we keep proclaiming. We keep proclaiming. But there's one more, and I'll close. I, I believe that the world can know or be confounded by the fact that you truly are pursuing righteousness in Christ. Right? I mean, the Bible says clearly the heart of man, David said, the heart of man is deceitfully wicked. Who can understand it? We know that. We believe that. And yet, somehow you, a sinner saved by grace, you, you are pursuing righteousness. Right? You, you're striving to live a holy life, living a life that's pleasing to God. That's confusing. The world knows, the world will deny it, the world knows the heart is deceitfully wicked. We see it and live it out every single day. So how, how can you possibly be so different? I mean, how can you, if you're living a different life in Christ, the world will look at you and they'll think, they'll say something like, oh, maybe, you know, you got religious. You got religious on us. You know, you were normal once. You were hanging out with us, doing all things, but now you got religious. Or maybe they'll say that you, you found yourself today. You found your truth today. Maybe if they've been truly influenced by the marketeers, they'll say, you went shopping at Ikea, invested your money at Chase, and had a Pepsi for lunch, and now you have your new life now. Maybe. But what they're actually seeing, what we know they're seeing, is the power of the gospel. What they're seeing in you is the gospel being manifest day in and day out in your holy living, in your pursuit of Jesus. A life, listen, a life so committed to Christ that you, when you claim to be a Christian, you are saying, I want to know and I want to live in accordance with God's word. I want to know it and I want to live in accordance with it. And therefore, when I do proclaim the gospel to my family and my friends and my neighbors and my coworkers, when I do tell them about this new way of life in Christ, that they too can repent of their sins and be saved this day, they won't look at me like a hypocrite. They will see you and say, yeah, you're different. Your life is different. Something is about you is different. I don't know what it is. And you can say, here's what it is. It's Jesus. It's the power of the gospel, and you can proclaim it to them too. Your life, my beloved, like our Lord's and the Apostles, is to be a living testimony to the glory of God. That's why you're here. That's why Jesus hasn't taken you home yet. Your life is to be a living testimony, you living a holy life, proclaiming the gospel with your lips that others might be drawn in. Yes, some will be repelled by it. Some will never speak to you again. Some may come after you like the Sanhedrin. Maybe. But if you know Christ, it doesn't matter. 
because you have eternal life now. It does not matter what will happen to you because your life is set in Christ. My beloved, the gospel is powerful. The gospel is infinitely more powerful than we know. Powerful enough to change hearts, change lives, change an entire community. Yes, San Jose, California can be radically changed by the gospel of grace if God is so pleased to do so. Do not relegate it to an evangelistic tool. Don't do that. Know the gospel, meditate on the gospel, and be willing to have the Holy Spirit use you to change you in the culture in which you live. After all, my beloved, it is the power of God to all who believe. Amen? The power of God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we must ask first for forgiveness for not seeing clearly and then not living properly in the power of the gospel that has saved us from eternal damnation. I pray, Father, you'd be gracious with Cambrian Park Baptist Church that we would be faithful each and every day to pursue Christ with all our might out of the great love that he has for us, loving him in return, and as a result, Lord, living this new life that the apostles testified to, not only in their teaching, but in their sacrifice. I know, Father, you must do this. We, we can become a very religious people. We can go through the motions and see no change and somehow be okay with that. That's not the story of redemption. The story of redemption is one of transformation, real power in real people doing a mighty work for your glory. Do that, Lord, in us. In each and every one of us, Lord, equip us as you have to exercise our gifts that this world might stand on edge. Cause them to be confounded. Draw them in, Father, through our living testimony, I pray. I ask that you would do this, that you might grow your church here, that you might have more children praising you for eternity. And do that through us, if you are so pleased. In Christ's name, amen.